You may be seated. If you get your Bibles, will you open up with me? First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to invite the ushers forward. Verses, First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It's good to be with you this morning. Our newsletter will be going out this week, so if you are not signed up for our newsletter to find out what's happening in the month of March with some kind of men's gatherings and, 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 and all the other things happening in March, we would love for you to be able to sign up on, for that newsletter. You can do so just at the bottom of our webpage, faithfulbiblechurch.com, right there at the bottom. It's an opportunity for you to sign up for the newsletter, so it's going out this week, so I will allow those announcements to be sent to you through email. But if you've got your Bibles again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we're making our way uh, through the book of 1 Peter. And we've kind of come to the third section of kind of the middle section of 1 Peter, talking about what it looks like to be subject. Listen to Peter's words this morning. This is uh, another difficult text, but it says this. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands... So that even if some do not obey the word, they may, might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hidden, uh, be the hidden person of the heart with, these, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how uh, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Three difficult texts. This is what happens when you preach kind of just through books of the Bible. And this morning, hopefully, we'll be able to see this text come to light. By the time, it was Percy and and Florence Aerosmith. That is their real name, Percy and Florence Aerosmith. They have the Guinness World Record for the longest marriage. They were married for 80 years. They were married on June 1st, 1925, and for the next eight decades, they lived by each other's side. When somebody came up to Percy on their 80th anniversary, he asked them, what is the secret of the longevity of your marriage? And, and Percy responded with this. He said, the secret of my marriage, it comes down to two words. Me saying, yes, dear. He said it somewhat in a humorous fashion, but little did Percy understand how much truth is actually spoken in those two words. Because those two words really point us to this biblical idea of sacrifice. See, if you and I want to understand the, the, the biblical secret, the Christian secret to a long-lasting, a, a beautiful marriage, it comes down to this principle. Both spouses, willingness to, to sacrifice for the benefit of the other. If you don't get anything else I say, here's the, the secret to a biblical long-lasting marriage. It's, it's both spouses. Willingness to sacrifice for the sake of their spouse, for their benefit. Martin Luther 
He understood this. He understood that marriage was quite difficult. In that first year, he said, it's man is quite different waking up with a set of pigtails on the pillow next to you. And he said, from that moment on, I realized that every decision I made had to be now made in light of his wife's emotions, her thoughts, her desires. In other words, what Martin Luther understood is from that moment on, he was going to, make, he was going to have to make sacrifice, a daily occurrence in his marriage. Was it always easy for Martin and Katie? Absolutely not. But, but on those difficult days, what they did is they fell upon the grace of God. Martin Luther began to describe his marriage as the schoolhouse of character. God means of sanctifying him, of transforming him. It was the house of marriage that God was using in Luther's life to teach him what it looked like to, to love his closest neighbor as himself. It was the, house of, uh, the schoolhouse of marriage that, that God was using in Luther's life to teach him what it looks like to put others' needs above his own or to consider other people more important than his own, as Philippians 3 would say. It was the schoolhouse of marriage that God was using in Luther's life to, to allow Luther to imitate his Savior by willing to sacrifice on behalf of Katie. See, the secret to a long-lasting marriage, it comes down to that principle, are we willing to sacrifice for the benefit of our spouse. This word sacrifice shouldn't really be surprising to us because this is what, been, what Peter has been really trying to, to get across to us this, this last section of the scriptures. He's been telling us this is what it means to be subject to, to every human institution. This is what it means for, for employees to be subject to their bosses. It means that we are willing to lay down our rights and sacrifice for the benefit of those who are over us. Shouldn't surprise us then as we come to this passage and see the same thing, but these words are difficult to be able to sacrifice in the context of these kind of last three passages, sacrifice for the benefit of those who are actually mistreating us. That's when it becomes really difficult. How am I willing to lay down my rights so that, that other people can see Christ in me when those who are mistreating me and for their, their good? This is what Peter is wanting us to see. But remember what his call was. His call for us is to be different, to be set apart. We have been chosen exiles, and as exiles in our fears of influence, we've been called to, to live a holy life because our God is holy. That's what holy means, to be set apart, to be sanctified for this purpose, to live different lives. But again, the problem is, how do we sacrifice for the benefit of those who are mistreating us? Peter told us the answer last week. He says, just look to Jesus. Jesus, who was reviled or, or hated, he, he didn't hate in return. And when he suffered, he didn't seek vengeance. And because Jesus, when he was mistreated, he didn't seek vengeance, he therefore gave his church the ability to have God. And Peter says, do the same. Walk in the same manner, right the way that Jesus responds to mistreatment upon the canvas of your own heart, so therefore, those who are mistreating you can see God through your response as well. This is why it becomes so important how you and I respond to mistreatment. The purpose is to, to win the person over who is mistreating us, to, to show them a glimpse of who Jesus is by our response but as we come to this passage this morning, Peter's going to ask us to do it in the context of 
marriage. But specifically, as you're looking at this passage, it's in the context of these wives who are coming to faith, and yet their husband wasn't a believer yet. So therefore, how do you submit to this non-believer? And in the context, it's husbands who are, who are coming to faith, but their wives are non-believers. How do we treat our wives? And this is the context of this passage. What does it look like for us to sacrifice for our spouse? But again, we have to notice the reason that he is saying this. Remember again that this passage flows from verse 11 to 12 in chapter 2. Will you look at those verses with me again as we kind of see why Peter writes this section of Scripture in the first place? Notice what he says. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. This, this is a natural inclination. Your, your flesh as you are mistreated. That's, that's what you want to go to. But what does he say? He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, do you see his purpose there? It's to live in such a way that, that those who are mistreating us would be able to see our good works and glorify our God in heaven. And, and he's saying the same thing in the context of marriage. This ability to, to willing to sacrifice that our spouse would be able to see Jesus is what Peter is asking us to do this morning. But we understand those first words that we see in this passage might be the hardest for us to be able to obey. I think part of why this, this passage becomes so, so difficult is because we've seen so many husbands misuse a passage like this. Those first words, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And immediately we kind of flinch because we've seen so many husbands abuse this. The only problem is that these husbands who are abusing this text, they've neglected to see their part of the deal, which God is calling them to act. And in many ways, their part of the deal is, is even harder. Because remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He would look to the husbands, he says, I, I need you to love your spouse as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He sacrificed for its benefit. Sacrificed to the point of giving his everything. As he died to himself, died upon the cross for the benefit of the church. And, and he says this, this is how husbands are called to, to love their, their, their wives. To sacrifice. To, to lay down your life. This is the husband's huge calling. To put your spouse's needs above your own as Christ did for the church. And when you and I are able to, to live in such this fashion, husbands, this, this makes it easy for, for, for our spouse to follow our leadership. Here what's so interesting again in this passage is now Peter is turning to, to the wives and he's saying, hey, I still need you to be subject even when your, your husband isn't living that way. Even when they're mistreating you with their words or their conduct. He's saying, here, I need you to be able to come under their leadership. But notice why he does this, because he links it again to the passage before it, and he immediately does it with the word likewise. Look again what it says in verse 1. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, catch it, so that even if some do not obey the word that are unbelievers, they may be won without a word by, by the conduct of their wives. You see, his purpose 
His purpose and why he's being subject is, is to win the spouse over by their gentleness or their character. That by their willing to follow their husband's leadership, that husband would be able to see Jesus through their, their response and, and that they would hopefully come to saving faith as well. That's what he's asking. And in fact, is, there's kind of background to this passage that's important for us to see because this was going to be vastly important, specifically in first century times. You have to understand in Roman culture that, that a wife was called to, to have no other friendships other than the friendships that were connected to her husband and she was called to, to worship only her husband's gods. So hopefully you see instantly the problem that, w- that these new kind of wives coming to, to, to faith in the gospel would have. Because they're not able to follow their husband's gods as they align their soul allegiance to Jesus Christ. And secondly, as they begin to join the corporate gathering of the saints, what would happen? They would have to leave the friendships of their husband and form new friendships within the body of Christ. So what you've seen within the culture is the same thing that was happening with the other texts. These false rumors were being spread about them. They were saying that these women were rebellious. They, 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 we, these, what, what, what are these women doing forming other friendships than from their husbands? So it was looking very suspicious. Add that to the fact, in a patriarchal kind of society in which the husband could divorce the wife for any reason, especially Jewish husbands, they could divorce their wife for simply just making a wrong meal, Imagine these wives coming to saving faith now. Imagine the problem that they would have as these wives would form new friendships and and it would be so easy in this moment for the husband to turn to his wife and say, well, I'm just going to divorce you, which would lead to a life of where she would have no support or financial stability. Add that to the fact that these husbands' reputation was hindered by their wives' newfound faith. People would look at them and say, well, you don't have any control of your household because she's not worshiping the same gods as you and she's leaving your household to form new friendships. And notice what Peter says to these women in light of this problem. In light of the rumors that were being spread, he does the same thing what he's done throughout this passage. Rumors that were being spread about the, about the church That they weren't coming in line with the emperor. They were traitors to the nation because they weren't worshiping the emperor Nero. So what does he tell them in this moment? He says, show them how different you are. Be subject to every human institution. Yes, you won't worship the emperor, but by your ability to to come and submit in every other area, you will be able to persuade them that all these rumors are false. And now he turns to the wife and says the same thing. Show them that, that you aren't these people who are rebellious by your willingness to follow your husband's leadership. He says, show them that all these rumors about you are untrue. In fact, the background of this passage becomes so vastly important because we're going to see it again in verses 3 and 4. Because imagine these women who are going now to go and gather or, or, or join the corporate gathering of the saints. Imagine if they get dolled up Imagine if they're getting, kind of getting ready for the gathering of the saints. What would be said about them? Karen Jobes helps us in this understanding in which she would say in Roman culture, outward adornment was often perceived as instruments of seduction. And women's use of cosmetics was viewed as an attempt to deceive. So what does Peter tell them to do in verses 3 through 4? He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting of the gold of jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, in God's sights, is very precious. 
Very practical advice for all the rumors that were being spread that maybe they were being too seductive if they begin to dress and adorn themselves as they're forming friendships out of their husband's friends. So he says, squash those rumors. But second, we have to understand that advice is also practical in the sense, this is what God has always looked at. He hasn't looked at the outward appearance of man, but he looks at the heart. Our character is vastly important for Christian believers. That's why Paul would tell us in 1 Timothy that this kind of physical bodily training is of some value. But godliness has value in all things, in this life and in the life to come. So he says, I, I, I need you wives to concentrate on your character. Begin to put on gentleness. Begin to put on this Christ-likeness. And this is what's going to woo your husband over to come to saving faith. It's by your character. If you want your spouse to change... Peter says it begins with you. But it's important again to catch what Peter's main point is. He says, wives, I need you to be subject to your husbands, specifically in the context of these non-believing husbands. Why do we do this? To win them over so that they can see Jesus through our response. But what does it look like for wives to be subject to their husbands? This idea of being subject in all these passages really has the idea of respect. So to be subject to, to, to your husband simply means that you are respecting and you are affirming his God-given leadership, his loving leadership within the home. We'll flesh this out in a little bit, but because this kind of definition or this idea of being subject to your husband is taken kind of outside of its context so often, it's important for us to see what it's not. Being subject to your husband does not mean that you have to follow everything he says and do everything he commands. After all, the woman in this passage is worshiping Jesus Christ and her husband is not. She's attaching herself to a Christian worldview and her husband is, is not. She is being able to, to be able to join the corporate gathering of the saints while the husband is, is not. So being subject does not mean that you have to obey every command he says. Secondly, it doesn't mean you're less than him or less important or less valuable. In fact, you are able to now join your Savior, mimicking him as Jesus Christ submitted to the Father. In all these words of being subject, all we have to do is to see the beauty and the joy in it is look to the Trinity. Jesus submitted to the Father in all things, yet he was equal in essence, equal in importance, but yet different in function and role. So as God began to to form the family, yes, equal in essence, wives and, and husbands are equal in importance. But yet, because God designed it this way, he designed it different in function and different in role. So what does it mean for us to affirm our husband's leadership? Will there be disagreements? Absolutely In fact, the husband is the head. He has ears, so he should be able to listen to his his wife's concern, listen to her input, and be able to, to hear that input and listen well to that input. But yet the wife is called to disagree in a respectful, in a Christ-like manner. In fact, John Piper would say it this way. He says this. So what Peter is really calling the wives to do is have a, a disposition to follow the husband's authority and inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. 
I don't flourish when you are passive and I, I, have, I have to, or, or I don't flourish when I have to make sure the family works correctly. But the attitude of Christian submission also says this, that for the wife it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts as the husband and want to take me with you. You know I cannot do that. I have no desire to resist you, but on the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lovingly leadership, your biblical leadership, but I, I cannot follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king, so I must follow him. We can do that in a respectful manner. But what's so interesting here is now Peter points the wives, notice who he points them to, he points them to Sarah. He says, I, I need you to, to mimic Sarah's submission to Abraham. Let, catch what he says in verses 5 through 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Again, the idea there is a husband who is a non-believer who might be abusive with his words because of his newfound wife's faith. And it's interesting that he points to Sarah, because we all know Sarah, she's a feisty personality, pistol of an individual. She had no problem telling Abraham, I need you to go with Hagar. Right? There, there, there is this sense, even in the sense when, when she's calling him master, she doesn't do it in a loving way. Just read Genesis 18 and you see that she's laughing at her husband thinking he's too old to be able to provide an offspring for her. This is the context in which she says, Master. So why would Peter point these wives as an example to Sarah? A.B. Spencer, I think he's on to something, he says this. He says in the context of Genesis 12, we see something quite different. He says in Genesis chapter 12, we see Sarah and Abraham, they're exiles in a foreign land called Egypt. And Abraham is kind of scared, so what does he do? He tells Sarah, I need you to tell the leader of Egypt, I need you to act like my sister. Here he is, he's disobedient to the word of God. And yet, notice, she submits to him in an effort to save his life. Peter says, in likewise fashion, Wives who, who are married to an unbelieving spouse who is not obeying the scriptures. He says, I, I need you to be subject to their leadership. Why? In an effort to save them eternally. To save their life. So in essence, he's pointing the sense of saying, hey, I, I need you to submit for the purpose of winning them over to Jesus so that they can have eternal life. That's what Peter is wanting us to see. In fact, it might even be helpful here to explain this idea of what does it look like for us throughout this whole entire passage to be willingness to submit to mistreatment for the sake of winning them over to Jesus Christ. Why does Peter spend so, so much time talking to the wives and not the husbands in 1 Peter? And the husbands has one verse. Well, the reason why is because in Roman culture, the women was way more vulnerable, the wife was, than the husband. It was called for the, the, the wife to follow the husband's God. So when the husband came to saving faith and the wife did not, he had nothing to worry about. There was no mistreatment there. But yet he still gives her commands in this passage. But in the sense of the wife, she could have been easily divorced for coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 
So he says, how, how do you refute this? How do you refute this kind of the, what, what he would kind of persuade you, kind of pressure you into by being subject to him, loving him over in this respectful character kind of manner, Christ-like fashion, so that he can be able to see, so he can see God through your actions, through your willingness to, to follow his leadership within the home. But now he turns to husbands. And in the context of this passage, I still believe he's referring to husbands who came to saving faith, but yet their wife is still an unbeliever. And you might be saying, yes, I, I see that, Aaron. But then at the same time, I see him compare, in verse 7, he calls to treat his wife as a co-heir with him. That is true, but in the Greek, it also can be said that it can be translated, treat her even as a co-heir. To treat her even as a fellow believer, love her in such a way that she, she too would be won over by your actions. So in the context of this passage, throughout this passage, I do believe he's talking again to husbands now. Husbands who, who had a, a came to saving faith, but yet their wife is still not there. How do you treat them? Which is interesting enough, the application applies to everybody because it really is a call to love our wives as Christ loved the church, which we see for all husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. But notice what he says in verse 7. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs, or even as they are co-heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers, not, uh, so your prayers may not be hindered. You see how seriously... That God takes husbands' ability to love their wives in a biblical fashion. He says, when you step out of loving your wives in this biblical fashion, your prayers will not be answered. That is a warning. And a strong warning at that. So how can any husband take this passage and use it in an abuseful manner towards their wife to say, well, you're called to be subject to me. Obey whatever I say. You can't do that because your prayers will not be answered. In fact, what does he say at first? He says, live with your wives in an understanding way, in an understanding fashion. This is this is idea of, of knowing your wife intimately, knowing her desires, knowing her, her wishes, and then fulfilling those desires and those wishes. It's a call to, to live in this sacrificial fashion, putting her interest above your own. What's so interesting about about us in, in, in marriage is what we tend to do is we throw out every other passage. This speaks to interpersonal relationships throughout the New Testament. We read in Philippians chapter 2, consider others more important than yourself. And somehow we don't apply that to our marriages. But we're called to consider other people's interests more important than yourself. This is what the husband's called to do. This is sacrificial love. This is what it means to, to live in a Christ-like fashion. Absolutely sacrificial and otherly love. This is the love that husbands are called to love our wives with. In fact, notice what he says. He says, honor your wife. Honor, that word honor in the Greek literally means to put her on a pedestal, to esteem her, to, to honor her, to, to love her. Why are we honoring her? Because she is the weaker vessel. What does it mean to be the weaker vessel? What the idea we need to have in our heads is this idea of, of fine china. Fine china is, is, is valuable. It's expensive, but it's fragile so therefore because it's valuable and expensive but yet it's fragile we 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 protect 
we care for, we treat it, we treat it in a Christ-like fashion because it's the weaker, it's, it's, it's fragile vessel. Do you see what he's trying to get at in this passage? The idea of honor, therefore, then has the idea of protection. Some of you are saying, well, I got big muscles, I can do that. But in the context of this passage, it's to protect her heart. How are you doing in, in that manner? What does it look like for us husbands to protect our spouse's heart? It means we are careful with our tone of voice. Understanding that our tone of voice can break our, our, our wife's spirit. So we talk in a gentle fashion, like Jesus would. What does it mean for us to protect our wife's heart? It means that we, again, we, we esteem them. We tell them how valuable they are, how, how important they are to our wives. Many husbands in this room, you're gone deployed. What, what allows you to be able to do that? It's your spouse. As Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon said so well, they would not be able to do what they did without their spouse. And we would say the same in this room. Honor, esteem, allow them to understand that, that they are able to, to support your family and, and you're so appreciative of that when you are deployed. What does it mean for us to protect our, our wife's heart? It means that we pray for our spouse and that we guide them to see Jesus as well. So that our, by our actions, our wives would come to a greater saving faith in Jesus Christ. Notice the context again. It's for a husband who has an unbelieving, an unbelieving wife. And by his actions, Peter is saying, hey, husband, love your wife in such a way that she can see Jesus in you and would want to pursue Jesus more. Same application applies to us. Husbands, are you loving your wife in such a way that your wife can see Jesus in your actions and she would want to pursue Jesus more, not less than, but more, by how you're treating her? See what Peter is getting to? It's this otherworldly Jesus love that we cannot do on our own, so therefore we must be men and women of prayer to ask the Holy Spirit to change our hearts and our inclinations so that we lo can love our spouse in this fashion. What is the secret to a long-lasting marriage? Your willingness to sacrifice for the benefit of your spouse. The willingness to lay down your rights for the benefit of your spouse. And when you and I are able to live in that fashion, people are able to look at our marriages and see a picture of the gospel. But remember, the problem I see over and over again in, in marital counseling is this. One of the spouses come in and wants the other spouse to change. But notice the context of this passage. Peter says it's, it's for you to change, and by you changing, your spouse will see it and want to change themselves. It begins with you. It begins with your character, your desire to pursue Jesus, your willingness to transform your character by the Holy Spirit so that you can persuade your spouse to come in line with the Scriptures as well. I'm reminded of the story Charles Spurgeon talks about somebody, a husband that was in his congregation and married to this woman for over 20 years. 20 years of marriage, this man was a not kind man. He was a drunk. He did not treat his wife kindly. One night at midnight, true story, he was out drinking with his, his, his friends, 
They were getting drunk to a point in which the husband said, you won't believe this, but if we go home right now to my house, I will wake up my wife and she will cook us a meal. And all the other guys were like, there's no way. No way that you can go home in this state at midnight, tell your wife to cook us a meal, and then she'll do it. He's like, yes, yes, she will. They didn't believe it, so they tried it out. <laughs> Went to their house at midnight. Drunk husband woke up his wife, said, we, we need a meal. And yet this woman, she did it in the most gentle and joyful manner. She cooked the meal with a smile on her face, acting as if they came at the right time and having a grand party. One of the men who was a friend who was a little bit more sober at the moment, he turned to his wife and he said, is this how you treat your husband always? She said, I made it my life goal to show my husband God. She said, I know that, that in the next life, if he doesn't change his way, this will be the time in which he is happiest the most. I will try to make him happy this most to persuade him to transform and change. Because I know if he doesn't change, that eternity separated from God is waiting for him. By her actions, this husband came to saving faith. Does it always happen that way? No. But the command is still the same. Sacrifice for the willingness for other people to see Jesus. That sacrifice is always worthy of our call. How much do you want your spouse to see Jesus through your actions? It begins with you. Your pursuit of Jesus. Your willingness to, to be humble. Your willingness to put on the gentleness of Christ so that they would be able to look at your actions and say, I want more of Jesus because there's something there that's otherworldly. Would you be willing to pursue that for the sake of Christ's glory? God, I'm thankful. I am thankful that you are a God who calls us to a task that we cannot do on our own because as we realize we cannot do it on our own, it makes us pursue you even more. So God, in a room this size, I understand that that, that many marriages are on the rocks. That, that many marriages are struggling. God, I pray that today that, that those in this room would pursue you with everything they have. God, you are the sovereign God. You are a God who brings comfort to those dark places in our lives. You are a God who brings healing and restoration. So God, I pray that you would heal those broken pieces of our marriage this morning. You understand, like a text like this, it makes it hard on the drive home. God, would you comfort? Would you comfort our people? God, humble us. Break our hearts that you would restore them, that we would leave this place changed individuals. God, be with those marriages that are struggling. Allow those spouses to, to endure in the midst of hardship. Let them see and let them understand that you are the God who brings them together, so let no man separate it. 
For those marriages that have already been broken, we'd understand that your grace is sufficient. God, would you redeem, redeem the hardship and the hurt that's been caused? That you are a God who surrounds us and sustains us. God, let these spouses that went through a horrible divorce, let them understand that you are enough. You are the great I am. So this morning, we, we as a church throw ourselves upon the grace of God. And we understand that your grace sustains. We pray these things in your son's precious name.